You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of Yahweh, and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of Yahweh. From the day that the Ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashroth from among you, and direct your heart to Yahweh, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered at Mizpah, and drew water, and poured it out before Yahweh, and fasted on that day, and said there, We have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh. And Samuel cried out to Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now Yahweh has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, And there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to Yahweh. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet and also episode 725 of this podcast and Saturday, September 30th, 2023. It's a nice cool morning in Colorado. In my part of Colorado, at this moment, it is 47 degrees Fahrenheit, my computer tells me, and I believe it. I believe it, not because my computer tells me, but because my windows are open right next to 
where I'm recording, where my computer is in my home office. I believe it. It's a little crisp, but it feels good with a nice hot cup of coffee. 6.21 a.m. on a Saturday with my cup of joe and the cool, fresh air of a fall morning, a fall Saturday morning at that. But in this episode, we're going to be talking about two books. Primarily, we will confine ourselves to two books. Not a whole lot of news, current events items, politics. We're going to actually talk about two books and how they relate to something more enduring than who or what is the latest flavor, 30 seconds of fame, or the flavor of the week in the way of scandals and controversy and what you should be afraid of right now. No, no, let's talk about something that has a little more staying power and is a little more enduring. Let's talk about the themes, not just the books themselves, but the themes explored in The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway and also Men and Marriage by George Gilder. In due time, we will. But first, 1 Samuel chapter 7. Let's talk about 1 Samuel chapter 7. If you will recall, in the previous chapter, the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been captured by the Philistines, is brought back to Israel. The Philistines have it as like a sort of trophy to remind themselves that they defeated and humiliated not just Israel, but Israel's God after a fashion. And so they set it up in their temple, and a funny thing happens. Their God, Dagon, who up until that point they would have reasonably supposed had given them a victory over the God of the Israelites and the Israelites themselves, their God, Dagon, doesn't do so well, doesn't fare so well. In fact, They start talking openly over the next seven months as plagues are afflicting them, as their statue of Dagon in the temple falls and breaks before the Ark of the Covenant. They start talking about how Yahweh is not just afflicting them, he's afflicting their gods. So solve for X here. It's not explicitly stated, but we're smart enough. We can see that what's not stated is implied heavily that they're crying out to their gods, asking their gods for relief from Yahweh, and their gods are not coming through. All they're getting is affliction from Yahweh until they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. But then the Ark of the Covenant comes back to Israel, and at first there's a lot of excitement, there's a lot of rejoicing. That rejoicing turns into mourning, as 70 men of Israel at Beth Shemesh die because it says they looked on the ark. They looked upon the ark. They looked on the ark. They looked at the ark. But this is not just a casual glance as the cart comes rolling over the hill. This is a, they were inspecting it in a casual way. They were getting handsy with it in a way that was too casual and it was too flippant and it was too glib. And it was not appropriately respecting the holiness of God. And so God judged those 70 men worthy of death for being so casual and to serve as an object lesson. This object lesson resulted in the men who were left, the people of Beth Shemesh, saying, it can't stay here. 
just like Israel had lost the ark because they were being casual and flippant, just like the Philistines had given it back because their being casual and flippant brought the wrath of God. So also the people of Beth Shemesh send for the ark to be taken back to where it typically resides, or at least not there, right? It just can't be here. It just can't stay here. Hot potato, Ark of the Covenant again. And here in 1 Samuel 7, the open is that the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the Ark of Yahweh and brought it to the house of a man named Abinadab on the hill. They consecrated his son, Eleazar, to have charge of the Ark of Yahweh. And from the day that the Ark arrived there, a long time passed, some 20 years. And it says that all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. So even though the Ark of God is back, they know, Israel knows, that there is a rift between them and Yahweh. And they lament it, which is to say that there's a pining for the good old days, perhaps when God was close or when they have been told from stories from previous generations that God redeemed Israel, saved Israel, rescued Israel, blessed Israel, dwelt with Israel, provided for Israel. They lament those good old days and they don't know how to get back to those good old days. But it's 20 years. That's a long time for them to lament after Yahweh and do what about it? So they're sad. Okay. Now what? You know, I tell my children from time to time when they are getting into a bad habit of doing something that is either destructive or it's hurtful or it's disobedient towards their mother and I, say, with regards to their schoolwork or regards to their chores or how they relate to each other, how they talk to each other, I'll tell them when they say, I'm sorry, and I'll talk with them about the thing and they get a sad look on their face, I say, you know what? Listen, the point is not for you to be sad. (laughs) The point is not for you to feel bad. The point is for you to turn away from this habit and this attitude more to the point. And yet it's 20 years of Israel seeming, to my way of reading this, to be content with feeling sad. But there's still a perhaps ignorance, possibly, or perhaps a stubbornness. And how we might reasonably come to that conclusion is what Samuel says to all the house of Israel. So this is a PSA, right? This is a public service announcement from Samuel, who 20 years prior was known to be a prophet that God had spoken to Samuel. Samuel had told Eli what God had told Samuel, and it came to pass 20 years of knowing that Samuel is a prophet, and here he is telling all of Israel, and I quote, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, if being the conditional word here, if, if you are returning, so present tense, right now, 20 years later, 20 years of lamenting, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, which is to say you weren't with all your heart to this point, you were double-minded, then what? Put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So that is to say, they had not been delivered out of the hands of their enemies. 
So they're still being oppressed these 20 years. They're still not serving Yahweh. They're still not turning to him with all their heart. But Samuel says, if you will put away the foreign gods, which is to say that they hadn't yet. They were still going through the motions of worship of Yahweh while also worshiping other gods. Even though God said, don't do that. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. They did. He said, don't, and they did. And now they're just sad and either feigning confusion or they genuinely are confused because they're double-minded. Well, all the same. Here's Samuel being very direct and boiling this down. And if 20 years of folly isn't enough, if that's not enough bearing with people and being patient with people, then how long would be enough? But it's 20 years and Samuel announces to everyone, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, put away the foreign gods. You haven't to this point, which is to say you're not. You haven't been returning to Yahweh with all your heart. You've been keeping your options open. You've got gods on the side. You're not committed. You need to commit. Dedicate yourselves to Yahweh only. Then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And the Philistines are bothering them, as is strongly indicated and expressed by how the lords of the Philistines react when word gets out that Israel is gathered at Mizpah. So Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah. I will pray to Yahweh for you. I will pray for you. And this is a very different kind of I'll pray for you than we, in many cases, are all too accustomed to. I'll pray for you becomes this kind of throwaway phrase when we're being flippant about it. In Christianese, I'll pray for you might mean that you actually do pray for the person or it might mean you want them to think that and it's just a gesture, right? If you don't actually pray for the person or for that matter, if you don't stop everything to pray for them right then, then here's a question I've asked myself when I say it. I myself do this, unfortunately. Why am I not just stopping everything and praying for this person right now? Perhaps I should. Perhaps I should be saying, I have just said a prayer for you and your concern. But Samuel says, gather all Israel at Mizpah. I will pray for you. And then he does. And what do they say? We've sinned against Yahweh. So this is not just lamenting. This is confession. So it's not just, I'm sad. It's, you know what? We agree. We have sinned against Yahweh. And then the lords of the Philistines hear about it. And they are going to come out against Israel. Oh, they're all gathered in one place. Let's attack them. Now, why might that be? Is this because Philistia feels threatened or is it because Israel has been projecting quite a lot of weakness for a long time and the pattern has been Israel projects weakness and vulnerability and the Philistines pounce? You don't want these Israelites getting together and ginning up the confidence to actually stand up to us because then our being able to just take whatever we want from them anytime we like will be over. This is the bully in middle school who doesn't like anybody else in his class being happy about something, being confident in something. He has to knock those people down a few pegs every time he sees someone else starting to get confidence. That's what I read 
the Philistines, the lords of the Philistines deciding to do here as these Israelites, they're gathered together. Who knows what they're up to? Let's go get them before they get their act together and stand up to us. And yet when the people of Israel are freaked out about this, and so you can tell from that too, they're accustomed to losing. They're accustomed to not coming out better than they went in in conflicts with these Philistines. That's also what it means that God would deliver them out of the hand of the Philistines. They are afraid, but they say to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us that he may save us. And that's a great response. Okay, we're afraid. Please keep on praying for us. Please keep on praying that God will save us from these Philistines. And what does God do? Exactly that. It says, verse 10, But Yahweh thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines. So what I think is happening here is God himself strikes the Philistines, and they are very confused. They don't know what hit them. Their memory is not good. Just like the Israelites' memory is not good, their memory is not good. It's been a minute. It's been 20 years. It's a generation later. They're being struck by Yahweh, and they're very confused. They don't know what hit them. When Yahweh thunders against them, they're thrown into a panic, and next thing you know, here come the men of Israel, and it is the men, by the way. It's the men of Israel. They come out from Mizpah and they pursue the Philistines. So that is to say that they chase after them as the Philistines are routing. They're in retreat. The men of Israel strike them as far as below Beth Car. So for a ways. And it says, verse 15, skipping on down, after the cities the Philistines had taken are restored to Israel, and there is now actually peace between Israel and the Amorites. It says Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he was something of a circuit rider, judge. So similar to Eli, Samuel is a judge, and don't suppose that all of the judges are only in the book of Judges. You have these two cases, at least, at least these two examples of judges who are outside of the book of Judges. They're in the book of First Samuel, Eli, and then Samuel. But you see here Samuel on a circuit, year by year, Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, he's on the road a lot, judging Israel in all these places, which is to say they bring disputes, they bring conflicts to him, these people of Israel, and he decides the cases. They bring complaints against one another. They bring hard decisions. What should we do? What should be done? He did this. She said that. What should we do now? Samuel is the one weighing in and giving a verdict all the days of his life. And then he goes home. After he runs the circuit, in a year, year after year, he goes home to Ramah, where his home was. He also judged. And he built an altar to Yahweh there. The picture that is taking shape then by the end of First Samuel chapter 7 is of a man who from very young, from a little boy, all the way through the end of his life, was consecrated and serving God. And again, all of this pretty remarkable when you consider that he didn't come from an ideal home situation. His home life was not what you would say is the ideal. 
not the pattern to follow. His mom was one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, and there's no indication of any engagement from Elkanah with regards to Samuel at all, anywhere. Hannah prays and asks God to give her a son or a child because her rival wife is constantly tormenting her, and God listens and remembers Hannah, and by the end of her story, or where she leaves off, she has three sons and two daughters besides Samuel, so six children. But this Samuel is raised, for all intents and purposes, by Eli, the previous judge. And maybe Eli gets some of the parenting thing right with Samuel in a way that he did not. Maybe he learned some of the lessons from his failure with regards to his own two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are much older, who are evil men, corrupt men. I don't know. It's speculative. But what's remarkable, what's not in question, is that Samuel is special because God calls and equips Samuel to do the work that God has for him to do in judging Israel and in delivering the people of Israel, becoming a spokesperson for God and faithfully delivering God's word to the people. As in, what God says, that's what Samuel tells them. And actually, that's a lesson he learns very early on in the bad news that Eli demands Samuel faithfully and completely deliver to Eli. Is it bad news? Yes. Does Eli want to hear all of it, every word, every last detail, or else all these bad things should happen to you, Samuel? Yes, also. Give me it straight, Doc. How long do I have to live? That kind of a thing. It's terminal. That's the kind of message that Samuel has from God for Eli. And if that's the baseline, if that's the starting point, and that's how Samuel is going to proceed moving forward, very direct, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help him God, just the facts, ma'am, like Sergeant Friday in Dragnet, well then, perhaps Eli gets some credit for having helped Samuel to get on that trajectory in the first place. I don't know. What's not in doubt, though, what's not in question is that God uses Samuel in a big way, and what God has Samuel say to the people of Israel is very simple. And actually, the response from Israel, however long it took for them to get to the point where they would respond this way, it's a great response. It's the appropriate response. Verse 4, so the people of Israel put away the Paals and the Ashtaroth, and they served Yahweh only. Samuel says to them, if you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods. And the people conclude surprisingly, okay, 20 years of double-mindedness. You might think, yeah, they're never going to change. This is just going to get worse and worse. Maybe that was why they were lamenting after Yahweh, because nobody is following after Yahweh And so therefore, nobody follows after Yahweh. Everybody's waiting on everybody else to get serious. Samuel is somebody God picks out to be serious. And when Samuel, 20 years on, says, if you're returning with all your heart, they listen, actually. Don't underestimate the power of one faithful witness, one faithful testimony being flatly, directly, plainly spoken. Don't underestimate the power of that when used of God, when God calls you to it, don't underestimate how effective that may be, correction, how effective that will be. 
because whatever purpose God has for you saying the thing will be accomplished. His word will not return void of power. But let's get into these books and let's talk about The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway and Men in Barrage by George Gilder. Going over to goodreads.com to look up The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway for starters. I see it's got 1,093,356 ratings, 36,974 reviews, an average of 3.8 out of 5 stars. More about that in a minute. 96 pages in the hardcover version, which is not the version that I read. I listened to the audiobook, which is not long at all. I was able to finish it in short order. But this was first published January 1st, 1952, Goodreads tells me, which is to say my dad was less than one year old. Actually, my dad's birthday was just this past week on the 28th, the day before yesterday. So you can wish him a happy birthday if you see him soon. But my dad was less than one year old when Ernest Hemingway first published The Old Man in the Sea. Fun fact, a little bit of personal trivia. My grandpa's name, my grandpa Mullet's name is Ernest. He's passed on as of several years ago, but his name is and was Ernest Mullet. But Ernest Hemingway, a little bit about him before we talk about his book. Terse literary style of Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Miller Hemingway, an American writer, ambulance driver of World War I, journalist and expatriate in Paris during the 1920s, marks short stories and novels such as The Sun Also Rises, 1926, and The Old Man and the Sea, 1952, which concern courageous, lonely characters, and he won the Nobel Prize of 1954 for literature. Economical and understated style of Hemingway strongly influenced 20th century fiction, Whereas his life of adventure and his public image influenced later generations, Hemingway produced most of his work between the mid-1920s and the mid-1950s. He published seven novels, six short story collections, and two nonfiction works. Survivors published posthumously three novels, four collections of short stories, and three nonfiction works. People consider many of these classics. After high school, Hemingway reported for a few months for the Kansas City Star before leaving for the Italian front to enlist. In 1918, someone seriously wounded him who returned home. His wartime experiences formed the basis for his novel, A Farewell to Arms. In 1922, he married Hadley Richardson, the first of his four wives. The couple moved and he worked as a foreign correspondent and fell under the influence of the modernist writers and artists of the expatriate community of the lost generation of 1920s. After his divorce of 1927 from Hadley Richardson, Hemingway married Pauline Pfeiffer at the Spanish Civil War. He acted as a journalist. Afterward, they divorced, and he wrote For Whom the Bell Tolls. Hemingway maintained permanent residences in Key West, Florida, and Cuba during the 1930s and 1940s. Martha Gellhorn served as third wife of Hemingway in 1940 when he met Mary Welsh in London during World War II. They separated. He presently witnessed at the Normandy landings and liberation of Paris shortly after 1952. Hemingway went on safari to Africa, where two plane crashes almost killed him and left him in pain and ill health for much of the rest of his life. Nevertheless, in 1959, he moved from Cuba to Ketchum, Idaho, where he committed suicide in the summer of 1961. 1961, 
he would have been just shy of his 62nd birthday. Ernest Hemingway is a sad figure. He is a epic but tragic hero of modern literature. As a man, as an author, as a person behind the stories, he is a tragic figure who lived a life of adventure, and he saw a lot. He saw a lot of adventure, but he also did not have success, you might say, in marriage, four marriages, ending his life in divorce and then suicide. He saw a lot of defeat. He saw a lot of pain. When he writes The Old Man in the Sea, 1952, he is 10 years out from suicide, thereabouts, less than a decade, actually, but not much less. 10 years after he writes The Old Man in the Sea, he will just call it. And it would seem as though, from the way The Old Man in the Sea reads, he's writing from personal experience. He's writing from a place of familiarity with the emotions he expresses by way of the old man. And the sea is a metaphor, clearly, for life. Yes, in its own way, going back to the little coastal village, that's also life. But life is, in the context of the story, more so out at sea, going too far and hooking the wrong fish. But it's a big fish. But then when you get back to the shore with it, after the sharks have had their way, sorry, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, after the sharks have had their way with this big fish that was too big to put in your boat, what's left except the spine, the nose, the tail, measurement, the macabre evidence that this once was a great, glorious, majestic king of the sea. And you killed it. He regrets, the old man does, having hooked the fish in the first place. And he thinks he's a goner. He thinks he will be dead. But he's sick with something. Something is coming up when he coughs. He has this long, protracted, lonely battle with his fish. And he coughs and he tastes something sweet and sickly when he coughs. And this is just left open to the imagination in the book, what it is. But you get the impression that he's probably ill. He's definitely old, but he's also alone. And that's more, I think, the point. This old man was arguably hooking a big fish because he was lonely. And what I mean by that is the boy's parents. There's a boy who fishes with the old man. Santiago is his name. And you only know the old man's name because, as I recall, the only way I even remember it, the boy who was fishing with him says his name. But that's one of the show-don't-tell marks of a great story is you are able to convey by negative space, compare and contrast things that you don't have to expressly say. And that's also part of how you can know Old Testament literature, New Testament literature is fantastic, actually, because there's quite a lot that's implied and it doesn't have to be explicitly said. If you want to understand it, you're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to meditate on it. So also with the old man in the sea, to an extent. You know the old man's name because the boy calls him by that name. But when there's nobody to say an old, lonely man's name, 
How does he think of himself? Does he think of himself as Santiago when nobody says his name for long extended periods of time? He's just the old man. Does he think of himself as Santiago or does he just think of himself as an old man who's not as strong as he once was, who doesn't have as much endurance as he once did? He's just an old man until he gets back to the village. And interestingly, the boy who cries, who weeps for this old man who has collapsed, he is spent, he's exhausted after this battle with the fish and with the sharks, after he conquers the fish, the sharks, even if he kills them, each take their pound of flesh or 20 pounds of flesh. The boy cries. He weeps openly for this old man because this is tragic. This is a lonely story for the old man. But then in its way, I think the old man is trying to land this big fish in the first place. He wants to land this big fish in the first place, and he doesn't just cut it loose for the same reason that the boy's parents forced the boy to go fish with a different crew because they weren't catching anything. The parents are thinking they don't want their son to be a loser. And they are, without saying it in so many words, issuing a verdict on the old man that he is not a good fisherman. Whatever he once was, if he was once a good fisherman, he's not anymore. And they don't want their son being a loser. So they don't want their son hanging out with this old man, not catching anything. What's the old man going to do? Well, he's going to honor the wishes of the boy's parents. He's going to tell the boy, do what your parents told you to do. And he's going to go out by his lonesome. And he's going to think as he is wrestling this big fish, he's going to think about how if the boy were there, the boy would be able to help him. But he doesn't have anybody to help him. It's just him against the sea. Because it's actually not just this fish. It's the whole ocean. It's a whole ocean of sharks who, when they smell blood in the water, are going to come and they're going to keep on coming. If you kill the first one, and he does, the more blood there is in the water, the more other sharks are going to be drawn to feast on your catch, your big catch. Yes, you got it. You got the big fish. And now what? What was it worth? It feels tragic and it feels very sad. It is very sad. And interestingly, with all the things Hemingway did and saw, and bear in mind the about the author portion here, it says Martha Gellhorn served as third wife of Hemingway in 1940, served as third wife until he met Mary Welsh during World War II. When exactly? We don't have a date. Did Hemingway and Mary Welsh get married? It doesn't say here. It almost wasn't worth including after a certain point. If Hemingway writes what he writes in 1952, and now he's with Mary Welsh, and it's not even worth figuring out, noting when they got married, because she was his final wife, Wikipedia tells me, you might think to yourself, Ernest Hemingway is writing from experience about going out into the wide world alone. And the sharks just keep on coming. And at the end, he chooses to take his own life because why? Because he has a bias for action and he's the captain of his own destiny? Because this is the modern atomized individual personified? This is the man. This is where it goes. 
The old man in the sea is the modern, atomized individual at the end. Strong in your younger days, perhaps people flock around you, but in your older days, you're left daydreaming as your hand cramps and the sharks are coming and all you've got left is a knife and your fists you're left daydreaming about in your younger days, arm wrestling men who others thought would win and you won instead. And it was glorious. But that was then, and this is now, and now you're alone. That, I think, is Ernest Hemingway's tragic story, and it's a cautionary tale. I think The Old Man in the Sea is a cautionary tale, but again, it's like a parable. It's not explicitly stated. It's not written in step-by-step instructions. Here's what you should do if you don't want to end up like me, but it's told in the way. So often, these kinds of stories have to be told in order to be understood. We have to be told a story about somebody who has flesh and blood, and it needs to not just be abstract ideas. Because when it's all just abstract ideas, our minds have a tendency to wander. And at best, we have a tendency to lament and carry on, just as we have been. It very often takes a tragic story to get our attention and for us to say, All right, I'm going to change. But I note, Before we move on to Marriage and Men by George Gilder, I note of the reviews, of the 36,974 reviews, 1,093,356 ratings in the community on Goodreads, 4% are one star, 8% are two stars. I don't know who these people are, but I don't think they have any taste. (laughs) I just I don't think they have taste in books. I gave it five stars, personally. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was brilliantly written, very economical indeed. 22%, roughly a quarter of a million of people who gave ratings to this book gave it three stars. But that is to say, collectively, one-third gave it three or fewer stars out of five A third gave it four stars. A third gave it five stars. You can't win them all, I suppose. Here's one prominently displayed five-star rating from Matt. Just a little bit of an excerpt from this posted April 26th, 2016. Matt says, I read this as a young man and was disappointed. It didn't work for me. I thought it was about a crazy old man gone off the reservation, picking a fight with an innocent fish while ranting about the New York Yankees. Quote, I would like to take the great DiMaggio fishing. They say his father was a fisherman. End quote. I picked it up again after the passage of some years and found it incredibly poignant. It's a simple story. There's an old man, Santiago, who is a fisherman, fallen on hard times. He's cared for by a young boy, Anolin, who no longer works on his boat. Santiago goes into the Gulf and engages in the fight of his life with a giant marlin. What follows is a dreamlike stream of conscious meditation as the old man matches strength and wits with the great fish. Now let's just stop right there and let's appreciate what Matt is saying here is when he was younger, he read this and it didn't make any sense. It seemed like a stupid story. What a stupid story. Like the boy in The Princess Bride. When grandpa comes to read him a story, he is cynical. He's got a bad attitude. What does he say? Is this a kissing book? As he goes on, as he restrains his own spirit 
the boy in the Princess Bride film is more and more drawn into the story and he more and more begins to empathize with certain characters. He's interested in what's going to happen. He cares about what's going to happen. Well, so also with life. This guy, Matt, says, I read this as a young man and I was disappointed. It didn't work for me. What does that mean? As in, it wasn't relevant. It didn't seem like it had any relevance at all to anything. And then what? The passage of some years, he picked it up again. And it made sense in a way that it hadn't when he was younger because he saw more of the world and he saw how this actually is a good picture. The stream of consciousness here is relatable. Like Solomon in Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities and a chasing after the wind. What does a man gain from all the toil that he toils under the sun, all the days of his vain life? Now, let's cut down to a couple of less glowing reviews. These people are probably in their younger years. They are definitely disappointed. First, Sarah, April 22nd, 2008. She writes, Oh, my good Lord in heaven, cut your line, land your boat, and go to McDonald's, which is just such an ignorant thing to say. I'm sorry. You probably think you're being funny, and you think this makes you really clever, but it doesn't. There was no McDonald's in their fishing village, and that's not the point. It's not just about getting food. It's about a man being a man. It's about a man having purpose and belonging contingent on his ability to provide and protect in community. He doesn't get a family He's excluded from the social and sexual marketplace when he doesn't have the capacity to provide and protect. That's what it is. To tell men, to tell a old man in a fictional story, cut your line, land your boat, and go to McDonald's is lazy and ignorant and foolish. But then we're not serious people. We're an unserious people. And these are the kinds of things that unserious people write. No offense, Sarah, but this is not so good. Now, what's interesting is she follows up later, and there's more to her review from 2008, but she edited it, it looks like, and she said, it's been a while since I wrote this review, and there's a lot of amusing speculation in the comments people have attached. I have to say they crack me up. Here's my final word on reviewing on Goodreads or anywhere. One of the most important elements of reading is that it allows each of us to react in the way we need to react without judgment. As we experience the book, this is how I reacted to the old man in the sea. Hemingway is dead, or I wouldn't have been so upfront with my opinion He's not insulted. I understand that we all need goals in life, and I've been happily married for a long time. I take a deep breath and smile. Life is too short to be anxious about stuff like this. Yes, but you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong. Okay, so you have this honest reaction, but you're saying more about yourself than you are about the subject. You're bringing more heat than light to the topic, and you are a woman, it looks like. Sarah is a girl's name. You're not understanding, but then how could you? One more negative review. This one from Matt, November 28th, 2007. He writes, worst book ever. He gave it a one star out of five. Worst book ever. Just throw the effing fish back in. F, and I'm cleaning it up a little bit. 2,747 likes. He's got this tagged. Overrated. School forced me to read this. Sucked. And... You also are saying more about yourself than you are about the subject. And also you're saying more about the public education system in this country than you are about the subject. This is typical, right? A school forces you to read a book and you hate it. Why? Because it wasn't your idea. 
and because they typically make the book terrible in the way that they force you to dissect it. I mean, imagine, imagine seeing some beautiful, majestic creature out in the wilderness and then bringing it into a lab and carving it up. And that's how you're supposed to appreciate the beauty of this animal. You might learn some things. You might learn about its anatomy, but you're not going to enjoy that beautiful, majestic creature like you would if you had just let it roam around in some meadow with the mountains behind and maybe the sun setting, rays glancing down off the peaks into the valley below, striking antlers just right, tall grass waving back and forth. You don't enjoy the beauty and the majesty and the power, the vibrancy of that animal the same when you just pull it into a sterile environment and dissect it. And yet that's how far too many schools present great literature. You're going to read about the book and then you're going to read the book, but by then it's ruined. It's just wrecked. But again, this is also the modern life, cynical, contemptuous, vain, self-absorbed, emotivist. And yet, in some sense, what's being conveyed in The Old Man and the Sea? A lot of emotion, but in very economic prose. Here's what I'm doing. And yet there's a sentiment. There's a sentimentality. There's a genuineness to it, which can be commended even as what is genuinely being communicated is very sad. Moving on, though, let's get into some more non-fictional application of truths about the current situation of men, the current plight of men in our day, in our time. Enough of allegories for a moment. George Gilder wrote a book in 1986. That's when it was first published, August 31st. And since I gave you a little bit of an idea as far as personal trivia of when The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway was published relative when my father was born. He was less than a year old. I'll say, interestingly, Gilder's book here was published while I was in the womb. I had not yet been born, but I would be soon enough. August 31st to November 5th, this book was still fresh in a lot of people's minds when it first came out. Originally published as Sexual Suicide. That was the title initially. Men in Marriage is what he adapted the title to because as he thought about it more, I think, and then revised it, updated it, he realized men and marriage is maybe a little more to the point. Sexual suicide is a bit bleak. That's a bit pessimistic, although he does talk about that quite a lot. What we're really trying to talk about in a balanced way here is men and marriage. Now, interestingly, this book, even an awareness of it, I credit Doug Wilson and Canon Plus for, and I thank them, actually. I thank them for this book and a few others that I have read in recent years. It would seem Canon Press has the rights, the publishing rights now. It's on canonpress.com, available there. You can buy the hard copy version, the updated. Great, great cover. The font and the color scheme is just fantastic. Very retro, very cool. Actually, on the front cover of the version that they're marketing on their website is 
a brief quote from Ben Shapiro at the very, very top. Here's what Ben Shapiro had to say about it. Controversial and vitally important. To the extent we ignore Gilder's message, we will fall into a state of inexorable societal decline. That's quite the statement. That's quite the statement from Ben Shapiro. And I would say that's accurate. And that's not to say you have to agree with everything that Gilder says, but you should tackle head on the claims that he's making and the statistics, the observations, the anecdotes that he's drawing out, the observations and the anecdotes are our experience. And he very crisply, very disciplined works through where we find ourselves in relation to the sexes, men and women, just two, and how the sexes relate to one another, how they relate to society. The institution of the family is just one facet among many options and many expressions of masculinity and femininity. Much of the controversy around homosexuality and transgenderism actually stems from men over multiple generations losing the plot and having been conditioned in many ways to lose the plot as to their purpose and their belonging relative the institution of marriage. That's, if not the big idea, very close. That would be my big takeaway. You don't understand why homosexuality is so rampant and it's become such a celebrated, vaunted thing. It's so in-your-face, aggressively demanding affirmation. You don't understand why that is. And you don't understand why homosexuals who are men are different categorically. Their motives and their expression are very different categorically from homosexuals who are women. Gay men, lesbian women, they approach these lifestyles for very different reasons because men and women are different. And the message that's being sent by the modern and postmodern world, the post-truth world we live in, lands very differently with them because men and women are different. But here's the subtitle, and this is a rather excellent positive summation of Men and Marriage by George Gilder. Civilization is built by men with families to feed. And that's a happier way of framing it than sexual suicide. Let's make a positive assertion instead of just throwing rocks at stuff we don't like. Let's convey that we understand and we actually want good for men and we want good for women and we want good for the institution of marriage and we want good for society. We want civilization to endure and not to descend into barbarity and chaos and violence, even though it is. It's actively doing so in so many ways. But here's what Goodreads has to say about men in marriage. Oh, by the way, too, there are far fewer ratings and reviews on Goodreads. Let's see if we can change that. I would strongly encourage all my listeners to read this book and rate it and review it. And you don't have to give it five stars. I gave it five stars, but you don't have to. It gets 4.22 out of five, but then that can be selection bias. The kinds of people who are going to read this book in the first place are the kinds of people who are more likely to agree with its premise, whereas The Old Man in the Sea, its reputation precedes it. They are just reading a classic work, and maybe it's because their school told them they had to, or maybe that's the way it used to be, Ernest Hemingway being a white man, an old dead white guy. Maybe schools don't force students to read his book anymore. I don't know. Nevertheless, this is a longer book 
about two and a half times the size of The Old Man in the Sea, 240 pages in the hardcover edition. Goodreads reads as follows, starting with a quote from Rush Limbaugh. Timely when originally published, Men in Marriage is essential now, given the warlike climate of male-to-female relationships, unfortunately fostered by radical feminism, end quote. Men in Marriage is a critical commentary that asks the burning question, how can society survive the pervasive disintegration of the family? A profound crisis faces modern social order as traditional family relationships become almost unrecognizable. George Gilder's Men and Marriage is a revised and expanded edition of his 1973 landmark work, Sexual Suicide. He examines the deterioration of the family, the well-defined sex roles it offered, and how this change has shifted the focus of our society. Poverty, for instance, stems from the destruction of the family when unmarried parents are abandoned by their lovers or older women are divorced because society approves of their husband's younger girlfriends. Gilder claims that men will only fulfill their paternal obligations when women lead them to do so, and that this civilizing influence balanced with proper economic support is the most important part of maintaining a productive, healthy, loving society. He offers a concrete plan for rebuilding the family in America. His solutions challenge readers to return to these roles and reestablish the family values that were once so crucial in staving off the ills that plague our country. Gilder insists that it is time to re-examine what liberation has wrought and what cost it has made us pay. Only a return to traditional family values, he contends, can stem the tide of disaster. George Gilder is the author of Wealth and Poverty, the best-selling critique of Reaganomics, The Spirit of Enterprise, Visible Man, Naked Nomads, and The Party That Lost Its Head. He was a speechwriter for Ronald Reagan and now writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal and National Review about material advances and their effect on society. His most recent books include two other well-known social commentaries, Microcosm and Life After Television, also available on paperback. And I'll just say right now, after reading this book, I am very favorably inclined to read more George Gilder. I want to know what he has to say about life after television. I'd like to see how that compares or pairs with, well or poorly, Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death, for instance, for example. Nevertheless, let's jump into a few quotes. There are six which are highlighted on Goodreads, and I will read them for you briefly so you can get more of a flavor of what's in the book. First up, George Gilder writes, and I quote, to declare enthusiasm for feminist ideals is almost a new mode of macho, a way to flaunt an invulnerable virility. Many will dismiss feminism as merely a matter of domestic logistics. Mention procreation, and they talk about the population explosion. They believe it is just as well that many women indicate disinterest in having children. End quote. Now, that's an observation. Ladies and gentlemen, that is an observation. Don't confuse whether you like it or not with whether it's true or not. Think about it. To declare enthusiasm for feminist ideals is almost a new mode of macho, a way to flaunt an invulnerable virility. Is that true? Do you find that to be true if you think about men you may know who have said, oh, yeah, 
yeah, I'm a feminist. Or feminism is great. You start being critical of the new morality, new speak regarding men and women. It's not so new anymore, but if you start to criticize those men, say, well, but wait a second, and they argue in defense of feminism, what are they doing? In some sense, they're showing off. In some sense, they're trying to prove that they don't feel threatened, right? It's just like when men wear pink to prove that they're secure in their masculinity. Well, wait a second. If you were so secure in your masculinity, you wouldn't need to wear pink to prove it. (laughs) Methinks the lady doth protest too much, perhaps. Fact check, true. (laughs) George Gilder with that quote. Here's another one. Quote, in a world where women do not say no, the man is never forced to settle down and make serious choices. His sex drive, the most powerful compulsion in his life, is never used to make him part of civilization as the supporter of a family. If a woman does not force him to make a long-term commitment to marry, in general, he doesn't. It is maternity that requires commitment. His sex drive only demands conquest, driving him from body to body in an unsettling hunt for variety and excitement in which much of the thrill is in the chase itself. The man still needs to be tamed. His problem is that many young women think they have better things to do than socialize single men, end quote. Now, there's a lot there. There's a lot there that is quite the, not necessarily compound sentence, but compound idea. It's a very complex idea. Let's take it a little bite at a time. In a world where women do not say no. Now, this is not to say no women ever say no, but it is to say that If a man checks various boxes, our culture for some time now has been promoting the decency, the normalcy, the naturalness, and even, yes, the goodness, the healthiness of a woman enjoying herself and enjoying that man. And yet, as Gilder points out, interestingly, at least as of the time of his writing, I'd be curious to see what the stats are from 1986 to the present, so my whole lifetime. But he makes the claim in Men and Marriage that virginity among women is decreasing. So it's less and less common for a woman to report that she has never had relations with a man. Less and less common. And yet, and yet, he says, virginity among men is increasing. Virginity among men is increasing. If that's true, and I haven't verified this, but if it's true, that is fascinating. That is fascinating. What is presented to us so often? It is always when it's the feminists talking about sexual roles, gender roles, sexual morality, abstinence outside of marriage, saving yourself from marriage. It is always said, well, the men have been behaving badly. Yeah, yeah, wait a second. Which men? All men? Or are you conflating the actions of some men who are especially successful at persuading or seducing lots and lots of women? They have a high body count, as it's said. Are we conflating a few men who are particularly charming, particularly well-spoken, particularly good-looking, particularly persuasive and seductive to women? Are we conflating them with all men and, by extension too, 
what if, right? What if the answer to that previous question is yes, and actually you have more women having sex with fewer men. And that's really actually the path to polygyny. Now, interestingly too, and I'll get into some more quotes here from Gilder in just a moment, but interestingly, he points out something that has maybe been a brief passing thought, but he delves much more deeply into this as he talks about the prevalence of homosexuality in cultures which normalize polygyny, which uh, whether or not men are allowed to be married to multiple women at a time, we have something like polygyny in the way that some men are particularly successful betting lots and lots of women. You know, if they're a, a very successful businessman or a very successful football player, or they're a very successful movie star or recording artist, we just take it for granted. Oh yeah, they're probably having lots of women, right? They have access at least if they choose to exploit the access. They have access. They have a lot of women who will be very willing to say yes, and they won't say no. Homosexuality, Gilder says, is prevalent in cultures where you have less women available for most men because the women are having relations with fewer and fewer men outside of marriage, or if you want to certify it and lock it down, they join a harem, perhaps. Homosexuality is prevalent because after a fashion, you have all these men who are emasculated by virtue of fewer and fewer men having access to the lion's share of the sexual marketplace. These men are emasculated. They're increasingly disconnected from the mechanisms by which a healthy man would prove his value to the community, prove that he is a man in good standing. And then also too, if this happens over generations, what do you get? What's very typical? You have perhaps one man a few generations ago, fathering children, fathering sons included, by many different women and being involved in the lives of none of those children. And over the generations, you keep that up and you have an increasing number of boys who are born to mothers with no father in the picture and therefore no aspirational model. And their father may have been one of these relatively few men who behaved very badly. And if they don't have a pathway to getting married, settling down, having children, raising a family, what ends up happening is they want to be as opposite the father who abandoned their mother and was never involved in their lives as they possibly can be. If he was very macho, he was very masculine, but also very undisciplined, and he didn't hear no very often from women, these young men, as they try to be as different as possible from their fathers who sired them, may find that they, even if they want a woman, cannot get a woman because they have associated masculinity itself. What was attractive about their father they never knew, they've associated masculinity itself with siring and then promptly abandoning children. That's perhaps more of what's meant by toxic masculinity, particularly as it builds up, as this becomes cumulative over generations. For that matter, too, Gilder remarks at a certain point, and I promise I'll get into some more quotes here in just a moment, but Gilder remarks at a certain point that studies have shown when women in a culture 
or in a community get more aggressive, men tend to get even more aggressive still. Men are looking for a way of proving to women who are in the sexual marketplace, who are potential mates, proving to those women that these men are strong enough, capable enough, they have enough drive and ambition and assertiveness to provide and protect. And that's what the woman is instinctively drawn to. That's what she's attracted to instinctively with high status males. Does he have the capacity to provide and protect? She can't help herself in being attracted to that or inspired by that. And so actually, interestingly, if you reframe the whole way that men are being criticized categorically in our society today, it may be that fewer and fewer men are behaving very, very badly with more and more women. You have an increasing number of men who are known as incels, which is short for involuntary celibates. So they are locked out of the sexual marketplace because they're always being measured against some man who is much more successful in his career. He's much wealthier. He wears nicer clothes. He drives faster cars. He has bigger, more expensive houses in a nicer part of town or multiple towns and cities. He's famous. He's rich. He's handsome. They're none of those things. Now, as Andrew Tate was recently saying in an interview with Tucker Carlson that I watched, speaking of Ben Shapiro, I watched Ben Shapiro do a reaction to, and it was great. It was was very interesting, really good stuff, really good food for thought. But as Andrew Tate points out, you know, some prettiest girl in town in rural Nebraska in decades and centuries past, she would have been looking for the vying of attentions in a relatively small local pool of males. Maybe there were the three most handsome, smartest, strongest men in her local town or in in the county maybe, possibly, and they would all vie for her attention until one of them persuaded her that he was the man for her. Now, with the internet, some prince in Dubai, some wealthy billionaire in France might find the prettiest girl in a rural Nebraska town and offer to pay for her flight to meet him wherever. He's going to see her and he's going to say, hey, yeah, come on out. We'll make a weekend of it. And because of the messages that society sends to that young woman who's very beautiful, perhaps she's told, if you don't, then you're missing out. You should have a FOMO anytime an opportunity comes up like that. And that FOMO and YOLO will lead you to follow your heart and accept the invitation. Have fun. What ends up being the result? Well, many young women think they have better things to do than socialize single men. Remember the very first thing God says is not good in Genesis is that the man should be alone. He says, I'll make a help meet suitable for him. I don't think I don't believe, having been married for going on 17 years now to my wife, Lauren, I don't think that the help meet suitable is only suitable from a practical, hey, you know what? Many hands make light work. We got lots of garden to tend and to keep, lots of animals to name standpoint. I think, yes, there's a practical physical dimension to it. Absolutely. But there is an emotional dimension to it. There's a mental dimension to it. And as we live in community, there's a social dimension. Some of his strengths, maybe her weaknesses, 
And so also some of his weaknesses, if he's wise, he's going to marry a woman who complements his weaknesses. She's strong in some of the ways that he's weak. And he, in order to be attractive to her, must be strong in some of the ways that she's weak. There have to be some distinctions. Otherwise, it's not going to work. They're not going to be attracted to each other. It's not going to be a good match, actually, if they're not able to serve each other in comprehensive, multifaceted ways as whole people. But if young women are being told and then they're thinking they have better things to do than socialize single men, they want a man who's got it all together, a man they don't have to help, they can only depend on, and all they have to bring to the table, all they have to bring to the picture is a pretty face and maybe a rocking body. If that's all they bring to the table, well, what happens when they start to get wrinkles and gray hairs and their body starts to sag in places? Hmm? What happens then? If we've said monogamy is not necessary, then in due time, the man who has it all together is just going to flip to a different flower. And that woman will join the ranks of the bitter, the angry, railing against toxic masculinity. She's had all of her fun, and now she wants to be critical of men in general and hate them. Well, wait a second. You had the sampling you chose. You should have paid more attention to what kind of encouragement, whether it was wise to be encouraged along the lines that you were, where were you getting your advice? Back to Gilder, though. Back to some quotes. Here's another one, an extended quote here from Gilder, from Men and Marriage. The drama of the unsocialized black has become the commanding motif of American culture. Driven to the wall, threatened with emasculation, surrounded everywhere by formidable women, the black male has summoned from his own body and spirit the masculine testament on which much of American manhood now subsists. Black jazz is the most important, serious American music acknowledged around the world, if not in our own universities. Our rock culture finds its musical and rhythmic inspiration and its erotic energy and idiom in the jazz gospel dance and soul performances of blacks. The black stage provides dramatic imagery and acting charisma for both our theater and our film. Black vernacular pervades our speech. The black athlete increasingly dominates our sports, not only in his performance, but in his expressive styles, as even white stars adopt black idioms of talk, handshakes, dress, and manner. From the home plate celebration to the touchdown romp, American athletes are now dancing to soul music. Black men increasingly star in the American dream. The achievement is an art of the battlefield exhibiting all that grace under pressure that is the glory of the cornered male. Ordinarily, we could marvel and celebrate without any deeper pang of fear, but as the most vital expression of a culture widely embraced by a whole generation of American youth, this Black Testament should be taken as a warning. For much of it lacks the signs of that submission to femininity that is the theme of enduring social order. It suggests a bitter failure of male socialization. By its very strength, it bespeaks a broader vulnerability and sexual imbalance, lest it points to the ghetto as the exemplary crisis of our society, end quote. Now, you may have all kinds of alarm bells going off in your mind when you read something like that. Oh, whoa, he's talking about black people. What's he going to say? Is this racist? Oh. Do, do I need to get my how to be an anti-racist tome off the shelf, dust it off? What do I do? What do I, what do, I do now? Is George Gilder canceled? Listen. Listen to what is absolutely incontrovertibly true. There are differences between cultures and subcultures in America. If it weren't so, it wouldn't be possible for 
there to be any such thing as cultural appropriation. If you're all worked up about the woke stuff, you don't even realize that you're a fish in water who's wet. It's not possible to appropriate somebody else's culture unless there are differences between culture. One of the differences between culture is how men express their masculinity, how women express their femininity in the particulars. But generally speaking, what is a common denominator, the lowest common denominator is that men need to be able to demonstrate to females in the sexual marketplace that they are the best choice to have as their provider and protector. For women who get pregnant, who have a maternal instinct, even if they don't want to get pregnant, but they still have that maternal instinct, they are instinctively hardwired to be drawn to men who are going to be able to provide and protect. This is why it's important for a lot of women to only date men, to only be interested in men who are taller than they are. This is why women systematically across the board are not attracted to men typically who are physically weak, who lack confidence, who are weenies. Why? Because if the woman is the strong one, if the woman is the one who knows everything, if she's the one who makes all the money at a certain point, that man gets tiresome and she grows to hate him after a fashion. In the black community, with a lot of young boys growing up in fatherless homes, blame to, not thanks to, blame to LBJ's great society programs, the welfare state, breaking down and incentivizing the breakdown of families, marriages, even heading it off at the pass, excluding marriage from the jump, from the get-go. You have a lot of young men growing up in homes where their mother or their grandmother is the strongest adult influence in their lives. They go to school and it's all female teachers. They go out to play basketball with other guys and they're offered a chance to either join a gang or be targeted by a gang. What do they choose? They pour themselves into whatever is going to allow them to stand out and be compelling to the women of the species, the female of the species. But insofar as none of this is necessarily tied to marriage, there's no socializing, civilizing result in the long run. It's just more of the same. It's a spiral down. Insofar as that mindset, that attitude of I'm going to be the strongest, fastest, most musical, hippest, coolest, most confident male does not result in marriage, settling down, raising a family together in community with other families, what you get is the breakdown of civilization. Just as George Gilder concludes, sexual suicide of a society, of a culture, of a people. Here's another quote, a short one. Poverty, for example, is primarily a matter of prospects and connections. Let me read that again. Poverty, for example, is primarily a matter of prospects and connections. So what's he getting at here? How does this relate? Quite simply, as social justice and very Marxist ideas about men and women and about various minorities, every minority that you can break society down into, as those Marxist ideas have permeated our education system and our culture and the way a lot of men and women think, thanks to critical theory and gender theory and critical race theory is just a subset of critical theory. Gender theory is just a subset of critical theory. Insofar as these things have been 
infused into the curriculum. Now, math isn't about math anymore. It's about critical theory. Literature is not about literature anymore. It's about critical theory. Insofar as that's the case, and it's all predicated on, ah, see, some people are poorer than others. If we think it's because the free market has been favoring straight, white, Anglo-Saxon, Christian males, and the way to fix it is to stigmatize the majority of the males in our culture and to penalize them in schools and in the professional world and in the community, in politics, what we are also doing is we are barring them from participation in the sexual marketplace. If we say it's all the same, and that, that's the best, that's the best that the egalitarians can say is it's all the same. Men and women, it's all the same. They should have exactly the same outlets. We should have everything be co-ed. Don't recognize any distinction between men and women. If we say that, that's the best anybody does when they do. The other thing, what they do is actually they penalize the men. They still expect a lot of the trappings of the previous age in regards to how men relate to women, but they don't expect anything special, any special sphere for men in particular to prove themselves, test themselves, establish themselves. No, no. What ends up happening is you deprive men in particular of prospects and connections that will enable them to provide for a woman or be a good prospect themselves, a good connection themselves for a woman. Insofar as marriages are happening with less frequency, the marriage rate is declining in our country. So also we're seeing prospects and connections decline. Now, as Gilder points out, this is a very lucrative state of affairs for marketers and corporations. I mean, think about it. If my wife and I both work outside the home and we both need vehicles, a car company can sell us two vehicles instead of just one. If she's going to be home with the kids and I'm going to go to work in our one vehicle, and maybe I work remote most of the time. And so she can run errands when I'm home with the car. Maybe we buy one vehicle, whereas other families would buy two if the man and the woman both work outside the home. If we had to, had to, had to, had to, and I wasn't working a job that required me to go to the field every now and then, we could sell our truck. Now, I do have to go out to the field for my job. Working in oil and gas, I have to go to well sites, other facilities from time to time, and I'm not going to take our 12-passenger van when I do. But you get my point. You know, if a man and his wife get divorced. Now the housing market can sell two houses where before they would have had one house filled and another house on the market. Everything that goes into a house now you can sell two of. If adults stay single for longer, now the man has a house and a vacuum cleaner and a dishwasher and a refrigerator and a washer and dryer and the TV and everything fill in the blank. And so does the woman. So it's very lucrative, but it also makes people poorer after a fashion. And what happens when you have serial monogamy, hookup culture, more women having sex with fewer men outside of marriage for years and for decades, you will get cultures, you will get subcultures in our broader civilization marked by inequality of wealth, inequality of opportunity after a fashion. If you don't have prospects, which is to say you don't have good opportunities, so to speak, you don't have good connections because you weren't able to prove yourself and show your worth in the 
professional marketplace, well, then you will be poorer. And that will lead to the poor getting poorer and poorer still. And at a certain point, you don't just get a whole lot of men without any woman, without a wife or children to think of and provide for, protect. You get a lot of men not just more inclined towards homosexuality as a way of having somebody, right? You'll also get more and more men frustrated, angry, locked out as they feel, as they see it, banding together and getting into trouble and overthrowing countries or when the elites have their finger on the pulse of things being sent off to some major war, some major conflict. Hey, we got to get these guys doing something. Got to keep them busy. Let's send them off to fight somebody else. They're just breaking stuff here. It's like the equivalent of in a home, the parents saying, hey, you know what? You guys don't throw that football in the house. Go over to the park. Okay. Take it outside. You guys are roughhousing. You shouldn't be roughhousing. You're going to break stuff. Take it outside. One more quote from George Gilder, though. He writes in Men and Marriage. Although some observers believe that feminism and sexual liberalism no longer threaten family values, little in fact has changed. Contemporary sexual liberals are merely less honest than earlier feminists in facing the inevitable anti-family consequences of their beliefs. They continue to maintain that the differences between men and women, such as men's greater drive to produce in the workplace, are somehow artificial and dispensable. They still insist that men and women can generally share and reverse roles without jeopardizing marriage. They still encourage a young woman to sacrifice her 20s in intense rivalry with men, leaving her to clutch desperately for marriage as her youthfulness and fertility pass. Although they declare themselves supporters of the family, they're scarcely willing to define it. And that's a mic drop. This is so very important that we get this. Now he's writing in 1986 and he's updated it relatively recently. How much, which parts did he update? Is this one that needs to be updated? I would say increasingly the feminists, the sexual liberal folks, they don't so subtly, so quietly threaten family values. They're more and more overt more and more explicit about it. But whether they're explicit about it or they're not, if you understand the mechanics, if you understand what goes into the psychology of men, what their instincts are, what their purpose is from God, what God's original design and promise and mandate was to men, and yes, even the curse, what the curse is as it pertains to men. If you understand the psychology of women, if you understand the original design of women, the original purpose of God and the command of God, and yes, also the curse on women. If you understand these things, you know whether it's said out loud, whether it's the quiet part said out loud or not, you know that what is being advanced, what's being championed, what's being normalized, what's being defended, what's being advocated, what's being affirmed, what's being criticized, all of it adds up to an attempt to dissolve the family as a meaningful unit of measure in society, to dissolve marriage. Early feminists were very overt about this. They wanted nothing less than to dissolve marriage and the family as we know it, because marriage was repressive of women, they said. The family unit was constricting and interfered with what women wanted to do. The right to vote was just the beginning. That was never all they wanted. It was, if you give a mouse a cookie, 
He'll ask for a glass of milk. Everything being co-ed turned in short order into let's let the girls win. Let's prefer the girls and the women. Now, in colleges and universities, it's 60% bachelor's degrees going to, not bachelor's, but bachelorettes. 40% of bachelor's degrees are awarded to men. What's that about? You say, oh, Garrett, I think you're going a little too far to say that that's anti-family. But no, the way most parents, and this is true even of many homeschooling, conservative Christian parents in America, the way most parents are bringing up their daughters is we want to teach them, we want to train them, we want to guide them and advise them to be ready when they hit adulthood to move away, go to college, get a degree, and become a professional, become a working woman, to be able to provide for themselves for an extended period of time outside of the home, just like the men. And so what happens? Over generations, young women move away from the family of origin. They don't get married off young. In previous times, they might have been married off to a man who was a few years older, who had proven his capacity to provide and protect. He had started a business or he had taken over a job in his family business or he had finished a degree program and entered into a lucrative trade. Now, what? We want the young girls, we want the young ladies, the young women to be educated in all the same ways as the young men. But then what does that do? For one, it conveys to the young ladies and the young women that they are in competition, as George Gilder is saying. They're in competition with the young men and the boys. That puts them in an adversarial relationship with the boys and the men. And it's awkward for them and it's embarrassing for them, but it's also emasculating to the young men. It's emasculating to the boys and the young men. Because now what's been taken away from the boys and the young men is the ability to set themselves apart and demonstrate to the young ladies why this young lady or that young lady should want to settle down with them. Now, to be fair, this has gotten very muddy and young men have been told, you know what? If you are compelling to women, if you are especially handsome, if you are especially athletic, if you are especially charming and well-spoken and successful in business, you make a lot of money, you're going to have access you're going to have access to all of the beautiful women you want. They'll just throw themselves at you and they won't say no if you take them. But then the rest of the young men are emasculated by that too. First, we emasculate the young men by saying we're going to let the ladies go first and make sure that the ladies are given all of the advantages because that's chivalry apparently. But we're not going to give the young men a way to establish themselves and then the bad boys, so-called, and they are being bad if they're just flitting from flower to flower to flower, the bad boys, they break the mold and they say, I'm going to do my own thing. And what? Exactly what one would expect to happen if they are of George Gilder's mindset is exactly what happens. That is, the women find them very compelling. Why? Because they've set themselves apart. They've distinguished themselves. The men who tamely embrace the androgyny of our public education system, our higher education system, which, oh, by the way, is not for no reason, in many cases, as Ben Shapiro's book from 2004, Brainwashed, how universities indoctrinate America's youth, how that book explains it, how he tells a lot of these professors have 
join together to oppose systematically anytime universities have rules on the books against intimate relationships between professors and their students. They're very opposed to that. Why? Because they love being able to enjoy little side benefits of being the dominant male in a classroom filled with women who are in their peak years of attractiveness, fertility, energy, vivaciousness. A lot of these professors enjoy special favors, special attentions from their female students, the affections of their female students in return for grades or even just because these dominant males in the professorships are compelling in a way that the classmates are not. If you insist that there's no difference between men and women and the problem is not <laughs> it is not the modern paradigm, the androgynous, radical, egalitarian paradigm, the problem is that I'm objecting, somebody like George Gilder is objecting to the modern paradigm. If you insist that, how do you make sense of these things? It's all the patriarchy with these godless folks. It's all patriarchy, patriarchy, patriarchy. But the Christian can't conclude that. This is about the destruction of the family. This is about dissolving the family. This is about glorifying the atomized individual. But then, as I said, with regards to The Old Man and the Sea, Ernest Hemingway's book, his having, by the end of his life, by the time he ended his life at almost 62 years old, four marriages, it's just an old man in a boat with a cramping hand, a fish too big because he was lonely and he was trying to get back to something that wasn't going to be attainable again, his glory days, his younger days. Old men understand this when they get old enough to be as weak as old women, which happens at a certain point. Old women appreciate this, perhaps, possibly, if they're not too proud to admit it. But what do our schools do? What does our culture do? It gets them when they're young. Get them when they're young and you can pinch all of the mechanisms when they're the strongest, when they're going to be most compelling, most persuasive, pinch the instinct to marry, repulse the biblical call to marriage instead of sexual immorality. Pinch that, even in the church. There is no end to the blathering and the flattering of the zeitgeist among even conservative Christians, I'm sorry to say. Now, it's good to tell young men you need to be able to get a job and support a woman before you get married. That's fine, right? I understand that. But you know what? There's a macro problem that is not the fault of a young man trying to do that. There's a macro problem when you say everything is going to be co-ed and you're going to give all the advantages to the young women and there are not jobs open to a young man like there once were. The cost of everything that a man would in decades past, generations past, have accumulated and acquired to prove that he was able to provide for a woman, to be wife, children that might result from their union. His capacity is less and less because of macro influences. And that's true due to affirmative action, due to feminism, due to radical egalitarianism, due to making everything co-ed at all the formative years when young men would be saying, hey, I need to establish what kind of a young man I'm going to be. We say, well, no, you just need to be a person. So what are we doing? We're affirming androgyny in those cases. We're saying, no, 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 there's nothing special about you. 
by your maleness, by virtue of your maleness, the social sphere around you, even in the church, will say there's nothing special or distinct about you as a young man except when it comes to opening doors for young ladies. So the only thing special is that you get to open the door for the young lady. You get to maybe pull out the chair if she's not going to be offended. If she's going to be offended, well, then you don't want to do that. But then what that produces is a whole lot of very anxious young men who are lost and listless and frustrated. And don't be surprised when those young men hate going to church, just like David Murrow's book, Documents. Don't be surprised when emasculated men at a certain point say, you know what? I'm tired of being emasculated. I'm tired of being browbeaten, criticized constantly, rebuked constantly, and the women never get rebuked like I do. The girls never get rebuked like I do. It's like the end of the world if I make a single wrong move or if I say one little thing that's not quite correct, but the young lady, she's always complimented. She's always encouraged. She's always nurtured, but then there's nothing special for me to prove myself with. Gilder talks about this happening in sports. Increasingly, even from the 1980s, and definitely today, girls, it is said, when they're very desiring of this, should be allowed to play contact sports with the boys. And everybody's like, oh, wow, huh. Or if they have a problem with it, they keep it to themselves. Because by golly, you chauvinist pig, you, you're not going to object. You're not going to complain. You're not going to try and do anything about it if it's a girl playing football with the boys. If it's a girl coming out for the wrestling team with the boys, you're not going to say a single solitary word about it or else your life socially is over. Your life professionally and politically is over. But, and this is telling, look how exercised a lot of parents are at boys who claim to be girls playing in girls' sports, in women's leagues, and dominating. Oh, that's not fair to the girls. It's not fair. Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. Bring that same energy to the girls being given entrance to everything that would be a male endeavor, a male opportunity, a male sphere in which he could prove himself and establish himself, prove his worth to, let's say, for instance, a potential father-in-law. If he's going to have to ask this girl's father for permission to marry her. Everything that a young male might be able to distinguish himself in, if he's going to say to a young lady, say, there's no father in the picture, and he's just going to ask her direct, because that's where a lot of young people are these days. You might love the romantic, old-fashioned notion that the boy always asks the girl's father, or whoever the most influential father figure in her life is. Paul Washer, spare me. Spare me your flattering of the status quo, because that's what I regard that as. You're flattering yourselves, actually. You're not serving these young men well when you burden them with that. You know, lift a finger to ease their burdens in this when you say things like that. It's not so brave. It's a lot of tough talk, a lot of machismo, because what we're actually doing is we're depriving so many of these young men of the opportunities that would allow them to establish that they are a man, whether it's the father of the young lady or it's the young lady herself who would be given access, granted access to the sexual marketplace. And you might recoil at that and you might say, oh, Garrett, I'm not comfortable with you referring to it as the sexual marketplace, but that's what it is. That's what it is. When we're talking about a generation of single young men and single young women, it's the sexual marketplace. If you say sex is for marriage, it's still a marketplace 
when it comes to who the woman is going to consent to saying vows, to love and obey in the way of a husband, if you're more traditional, and you should be, she should submit to her husband in everything. She should be subject to her husband in everything as unto the Lord. She needs to know that this man is the kind of man she can submit herself to and be subject to in everything. This is the kind of man who's going to be easy to respect. So also, the man needs to know that this woman is going to be a woman who is easy to love as Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. It's a sexual marketplace. Even when you're talking this man and this woman, they say, I do, and that's it, right? Now the marketplace is closed officially, but then we're so much in the habit of affirming and normalizing and spiritualizing and being pragmatic about these things. I think we're very similar to the people of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 7. And I'll conclude with this, even as I encourage you strongly to read Men in Marriage by George Gilder, as well as The Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. I'll conclude with this. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 with me. Under the heading in the ESV, Samuel judges Israel. Verse 3, And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to Yahweh with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. Enough with the hand-wringing, enough with the trying to mix in the gods of the nations with your worship of Yahweh. Because we live in a very secular age, it's not typically literally other gods, but these are vain human philosophies. These are pagan ideas, and insofar as a lot of these are communist, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist ideas that have been infused into our education system, infused into our popular culture, infused into our corporate media and how it reports on things. Since Marx, I'm persuaded, was a Satanist, (laughs) it's Satanism. You can as soon, as Richard Wormbrand said, you can as soon be a communist and a Christian as be a Satanist and a Christian. And yet, as long as we don't say the exact word, as long as we don't give credit in the footnotes to where these ideas come from, we say we can have all of it at the same time. We can just mix and match all of these ideas and all these paradigms, all these values, and then we can isolate. We can read them into the biblical text. And anytime somebody says, well, no, that's not in the biblical text, what's the biblical text actually saying you should conform yourself to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? We say, what? We say, well, but that was a different time. No, no, you are double-minded. It wasn't a different time. What God was calling his people to is the same thing he's still calling his people to, which is single-minded service of God alone. Instead of mixing in, even as you lament, you lament for 20 years after Yahweh, but that's all it is. It's a show, right? It's a show of grief and mourning without obedience, without faithfulness, without obedience that is born of grace through faith. We need more men like Samuel, and I would say in our day, more men like George Gilder, giving it to us straight. Direct your heart to Yahweh and serve him only. Put away the foreign gods. Then, then he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And here you say, well, we don't have Philistines today. And I say, we have near enough. We have the lords of the Philistines near enough. Anytime 
Antifa or Black Lives Matter or fill-in-the-blank radical leftist group gets word that conservatives and Christians are gathering together on an issue, they're coalescing, they're converging on an issue to take a stand in a positive sense on an issue, what do they do? They do the same thing. They muster all of their forces, the lords of the Philistines and our equivalent, they gather together and they come out in battle against us. And then what do we do? We get very afraid. We get very fearful. And if we don't have a Samuel who is already praying for us, who has called us authoritatively to gather together so that he can pray for us to Yahweh, we don't have that person to say to, please continue praying for us. We're kind of freaking out right now. Please continue to pray for us. If we don't have that person, what do we do? We fold like so many chairs after a banquet at church. All right. Well, show's over. We tried. Did we? Did we really? Or were we double-minded and unstable in all of our ways? Were we the man that James talks about when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God? It's pretty clear to me. All the clearer and clearer still, reading these two books back to back, finishing both of them yesterday, we are the double-minded man. In all too many cases, we need to be of one mind and be brave. Be brave in the days of your youth. When we read in scripture, rejoice in the wife of your youth. You don't have a wife of your youth if you're not getting married when you're a youth. When we read, children are a heritage from Yahweh. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. You don't have arrows in the hand of a warrior unless you're having children in your youth. If we say, oh, no, 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 we don't want young people to get married and we don't want young people to have children in the church and we spiritualize that, we normalize that, we rationalize that, we are barring those young people who listen to us, who submit to it, who uncritically either accept it or else get discouraged and walk out, never to come back, we are standing between them and the blessings that God says accompany rejoicing in the wife of our youth, men, and filling our quiver with the children of our youth. He will not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate, that man. But oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, you can't fill your quiver with the children of your youth in a biblical God-honoring way, in a way that's going to be blessed unless you're also getting married in your youth, young men, young women. And oh, by the way, the highest age of majority, which is to say full-fledged adulthood, according to Wikipedia, was 30 back in the Roman Empire, in the days of the Roman Empire. At one point, it was 30. That's the highest. And that is actually, interestingly enough, now the average age at which young men and young women are getting married. 30 for men, 29 for women. As though the other adult influences, their family, their friends, their community, are only telling them when they're about 30, okay, now you're old enough for us to respect and affirm you deciding to get married. This is how civilizations are destroyed. But as the tagline for the Canon Press edition of Men in Marriage by George Gilder puts it, civilization is built by men with families to feed. Speaking of, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. It is a Saturday morning. I got to run. We are planning on taking a trip to the zoo today for the first time, the Denver Zoo. We've lived here for four years and 
We have wanted to go to the Denver Zoo since before we moved here. The summer before we moved here, we were talking about it and excited about it. Then COVID and family tragedies, deaths in the family of grandparents, both my grandmothers, my wife's mother, a few miscarriages, an ectopic pregnancy, job changes. We're finally going to go to the zoo as a family. My youngest sons are ecstatic. They are so excited. They've never been to a zoo. They're very much looking forward to it. Enoch, who is seven, says he wants to be a zookeeper when he grows up. He's written out and drawn a sheet with all the animals he expects to see at the zoo. He's got pictures of them. And then he's got what they're called. And then he's got a little checkbox. And he's going to check that off as we go through the zoo, as he sees these animals. John, who is five, is so excited. He's asked me every day this week, hey, are we still going to go to the zoo? Are we going to go to the zoo? Are we going to go to the zoo? Yep, I think so. I, as a man with a family to feed, have some work to do. In the meantime, though, I've got some programming work to do from home. I'm very blessed. God has provided richly in the opportunity that I have to work from home, to work remote so I can do my work from now till we leave in my home office, be ready to throw on my shoes and head out the door when it's time. We've got a reservation. Apparently you have to reserve still in some places here in Colorado due to COVID. They don't want it too busy, but nevertheless, we're going to enjoy it. We're going to make an afternoon of it. It's going to be great. I'll tell you all about it in our next episode. Like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.